All right. Let's begin with a, a word of prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and your, you, you have revealed your word to us. Um, you have shown us how we ought to live and how we ought to know you and love you. And that we know your word is uh, a two-edged sword that can cut into us and reveal our hearts. Um, it's useful for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. So we pray that we would humbly submit to it and listen to it. Help us to rightly handle your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are going through the whole Bible, book by book. Um, we're actually very close to the end. This will be uh, the third to the last class. Um, we're going to spend a full week on the book of Revelation because uh, there's some interesting um, interpretive matters there. Today we're going to look at James and then we're going to look at um, 1 Peter. So for James, um, well let me just also say I, I truly enjoy um, Sunday school and teaching through the Bible because uh, it allows me to get into uh, the details and uh, think through systematically doctrines that I don't necessarily get to do uh, in Sunday sermons. And um, I love scripture. I feel like um, uh, it's the words of life and um, I hope that I can transfer to you some of my enthusiasm so that you can be lovers of the word and readers of the word too. Um, so let's go to, through James. So James, the, uh, the epistle of James, the author is James, the brother of Jesus who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The letter is focused on Christian living, on a faith lived out in good works. and. The most striking, the most famous, the most controversial passage in James is James chapter 2, where in verse 24, um, it's the first verse in the last paragraph, he says very pointedly, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And um, that should immediately strike you as um, um, noteworthy especially because, you know, I preached on justification a few weeks ago, right? And it sounds like a contradiction to Paul. Let me just give you two passages from Paul, right? So James says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is what Paul says, Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.28, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So it sounds terribly contradictory, right? And um, so we're going to try to resolve that. I'm going to try to explain verse 24 in a very satisfactory way. Um, and this gets us into our dispute with Roman Catholicism. Um, this, is, this issue of justification by works or by faith is the material break from the uh, medieval... Catholic Church that started the Protestant Reformation. So I want to hear, just very quickly review for you, explain to you what is the Catholic view of justification. So Roman Catholics, they believe in justification. They believe just like Protestants that it is a verdict, right, that God pronounces on your life of righteousness. Um, but the big difference has to do with 
on what grounds or what basis do we receive this verdict, right? So let me just graphically draw it out for you. Um, this is the life of a Christian. So you're born here, right? And at some point you believe. So let's put faith. And then um, you die. Okay? Um, and you believe, and then you live your Christian life, um, and we call that Christian life sanctification. We're going to talk about that, actually, uh, in the next week's sermon. Okay? Um, and then this is, you know, a life apart from uh, Christ. Well, I'll just put here a life of sin. Okay? Now, as Protestants, we believe that you are, you receive justification when you believe, right? So you are justified. Let me see if there's a stronger marker. Yes. Okay, so let me put Protestant right here. Um, we receive our justification, and what is the basis of our justification? Obviously not our life. <laughs> our life is a life of rebellion and running away from God, a life of sin. So uh, just, we're justified by grace as a free gift, because of Christ's righteousness, not because of our righteousness, not on our works, but through faith, right? That's the Protestant understanding. Now, the Catholic understanding of justification is that they also believe that you are justified. Um, I'm sorry. They also believe that you have to have faith. They also believe that this faith is a, a grace of God. It's given by grace. They also believe that you... After you believe, you're sanctified, but they believe that justification happens at the end of your life. Right here, this is the Catholic view. And therefore, on what basis are you justified? Your, your justification is an actual, is a verdict of your actual righteousness, right? of your actual record of your life. A life of sanctification, a life of uh, going to Mass and um, observing all the sacraments, and so forth. Um, and so what is the purpose of grace and what is the purpose of faith? Of course, these things matter because these things jumpstart sanctification. You cannot begin your life of sanctification without first believing and without grace being infused into your life. Um, but you're not justified by grace alone or faith alone. You're justified by faith and a life of good works. Okay? So the, 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 Catholic, the Catholic objection to the Protestant position is that here um, you're justified contrary to the evidence of your life. But in the Catholic viewpoint, you're justified on the basis of the actual evidence or the record of your life. 
Okay, so you could put it very crudely, you're justified by faith and works. And then the Protestant position is you're justified by faith alone. Okay, so does that make sense? Is that clear? Any questions on this difference between the Catholic view and the Protestant view? Yes? So, so Catholics, if someone dies right before they die, how would they make sense of their justification? Right, wait, wait, they die right before they what? They believe in God right before they die. Ah, I, I don't know. Um, but I assume uh, they believe it's just a, a very short life of sanctification then. Even so he can't, he's in the bed, he can't do anything, but there's no work done. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the thing with the, the Protestant and the Catholic positions is that um, in many ways, they're actually much more similar than you think. Because the, both the Catholic and the Protestant positions speak about the necessity of sanctification. This is... This is this, is, um, this has to always exist. So what happens if you believe right before you die? For the Protestant position as well, you just have a very, very short period of sanctification. The classic example being the thief on the cross, right? So I, that's not the question. It's not the question of is there sanctification? The question is what is the basis? What is the grounds? What is the, the, the foundation of your justification? And what happens if you just shorten this period to like 10 seconds? That's not the issue. The issue is where does it logically follow? Does that make sense? Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Question. Yeah. Um, isn't there a difference in views uh, between Catholics and Protestants like what happens after you commit suicide? Is that one of the reasons why? Is this, is this kind of where the difference stems from? Yeah, I mean, the, in the Catholic system, you can come out of this process. You can exit out by committing what's called a mortal sin. Uh, there are venial sins and there are mortal sins. Venial, venial sins, um, you can you know, do penance and so forth and, and uh, compensate, right, so that you are building this record, right? Um, and then, there, and then there, there are mortal sins which will knock you out, which will condemn you. Um, and then this whole life of sanctification, right? They believe in the necessity of sanctification. But what happens if, if you believe sincerely, you're trying your best to live a holy life, but your record is pockmarked and inconsistent and altogether unsatisfactory? Well, the Catholics have a loophole. I would call it a loophole. Um, they allow you to continue your life of sanctification here after death. What is this period called? Purgatory, that's right. Yeah. Which is, seems like a loophole. But. <laughs> okay. Um, so the Catholic position, uh, um, uh, I, ju I just want to show you that this is indeed the Catholic position. Let me read to you the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is Doctrine 1990. Listen to, this is the official teaching of the Catholic Church. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. So do, do you hear that, right? Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. Justification detaches man from sin, which contradicts the love of God and purifies his heart of sin. So the Catholic understanding of justification includes sanctification within it. It's based on your sanctification, okay? Um, Therefore, the Catholic uh, understanding of justification is ultimately based on good works. Um, this is, I believe, nothing less than 
the destruction of the gospel. Um, so this is the rallying cry of the Reformation. We are justified by faith alone. Um, if you, you lose the gospel if you believe this. Okay. So with that in mind, let's read James chapter 2. Um, I'll read it for you. Verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith sa save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, I, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the Spirit was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Right? So that's the verse that I really want to unpack and explain. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right. So what is the answer? And uh, the answer here is that James is not talking about works versus faith. He's talking about two different kinds of faith. You see that in verse 18 in the second paragraph. Right? He says, you have faith and I have works. Um, and when he says you have faith, he's talking about someone who says who has mere faith or only faith. Um, or the way he describes it is dead faith, right? So let me, let me compare the two kinds of faith. So there's dead faith, right? Or just mere faith or faith with just words. And it produces no works. And then he says, you have, you have faith and I have works. And when he says, I have works, he's talking about true faith. Um, a faith that is active and produces good works. So, it produces good works. Okay? Um, because what happened is that in the early church, there were people going around who heard Paul's um, preaching, radical preaching on grace and the gospel, and they distorted it, and they said, aha, faith alone. All you need is faith. Now I can live any way that I want. So they believed in a kind of easy believism, which still plagues the church today, where, you know, somewhere along your life, you turned in your prayer card, or you, you know, you raised your hand, or you believed, or maybe you cried at retreat, and then you think to yourself, aha, I have faith. I'm saved. But then the whole evidence of your life is there is no life transformation. And so uh, James is confronting this error, 
right? So people are saying, aha, I have dead faith, therefore I'm justified. And James is saying, you are wrong, right? So, so these are the two positions. Let me... Um, So you're justified by only true faith, not a dead faith. That's James's point. Um, this is, you can see that in verse 17, right? In verse 17 he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's talking about dead faith. Dead faith versus, versus true faith. True faith always produces good works. True faith always, um, you know, produces fruit. There's a great quote from Luther. He says, Martin Luther, he says, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And so he's not saying, uh, James is not saying that you're justified by works. Do you see? But works and justification always go together. They always flow together. So you could think about it like a tree. Right? Good works is the fruit. And life of the tree. Does the fruit give the tree life? No. The fruit is the evidence that the tree has life. But the fruit doesn't give the tree life. And in the, li- and in the same way, good works is the evidence that you are justified. So let's go to verse 24 then, right? Now we can understand verse 24. When James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, what is he saying? He's saying you're, uh, a person is justified. When he says by works, he's just speaking in shorthand. Does that make sense? He's just going very quickly. He's talking about faith that always produces good works and not by faith alone. The faith alone is dead faith that produces no good works. Does that make sense? It's, we're justified um, by a faith that is evidenced in good works. Any questions there for this, what, what James is saying? Yes, Lawrence. Troublemaker, Lawrence. <laughs> I'm just joking, so go ahead. How much, how much works is enough to qualify as We'll talk about that. I'm going to do a three-part. I'm going to talk about sanctification for three sermons in a row. So I'll leave it to that. <laughs> yes? Some people talk about how um, maybe James is making this point so strikingly because of the audience he has mm-hmm. part of it. Um, in the sense that... Yeah, he's definitely addressing an error, sure. like a, um, an imbalance. There were people who were basically, because you can see that in the context. There are Christian, Christians who says, I have faith. And then they just pass by people who are hungry and starving and, and unclothed. And they just say, be well. <laughs> and there's no real spiritual life. There's no like imitating the life of Jesus. Yeah. So, so that's what he's talking about. Um, let me see how I'm doing in time. Okay, let me go through this quickly. Um, Let me talk about the example of Abraham. In verse 21, 
um, James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? So there's that expression again, right? He also says that with Rahab. Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? But I think this is a very good clue that James is not contradicting Paul because even within himself, even within that paragraph on Abraham, he seems to contradict himself. Because in verse 23, James quotes Genesis where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The word counted there means credited or it means imputed if you remember my uh, sermon on, on justification, right? So he says that Abraham believed God and he was justified through faith, right? It was imputed through faith. And then he just says, Abraham was justified by works. So obviously, even within the internal logic of James, he can't be contradicting himself. I mean, he can't be um, that confused. So he's talking about justified by works, meaning justified by faith that has works, right? Um, let me point out two more verses. Verse 22 uh, James says, faith was active along with his work. So he's saying true faith is never alone. It's always active with good works. And I also want to talk about verse 20, uh, the, uh, another part of verse 22. He says, and faith was completed by his good works. The word completed there is the Greek word teleao. Teleao means fulfilled. So like, you know, a promise um, is then fulfilled by its, um, by, uh, by its, um, what, do you, what do you call that? Fulfillment. <laughs> Right? So, telao is like, imagine a cup, and the wa uh, there's water is halfway. I, you would never see waves like that in a cup, but um, <laughs> imagine a cup that's half full, right? And to be fulfilled means that it's filled all the way. Okay? So, that's the word he's using. Your faith, true faith, is like a half-filled cup in the sense that it's a promise that is waiting to be fulfilled and it will be fulfilled by a life of good works, okay? Um, any questions before we go on to 1 Peter? 1 Peter will be also very interesting. All right, let's go to 1 Peter. The theme of 1 Peter is uh, to persevere in faith while suffering persecution. Peter is writing um, in the context of Christians suffering intense persecution from the uh, Roman uh, Empire. This was probably during the reign of Nero um, or his successors. Um, all these uh, pagan emperors in varying degrees um, attacked Christians, um, persecuted Christians. And uh, you get a little flavor of that at the very beginning of, of Peter's letter. In First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7, let me read it for you. In this you rejoice... So now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's what, he, that's what he's talking about. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and, and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the imagery he's using there is gold being refined by fire, a furnace. So that's the imagery. Christians, it, it's hard for us to imagine but um, imagine that just because of the profession of your faith, you can, if you're discovered, you can be arrested, taken from your family, and just locked up in jail for a long time. Um, you can have your property, your home, your possessions confiscated. So imagine all of your life savings. You've been working very hard all of your life. All of that is taken because of your faith. 
And then many Christians were killed, right? Many Christians were murdered and martyred. This is the context in which Peter is writing his letter. And so he's encouraging the believers to persevere. And uh, that's, the, that's the theme of the letter. And one element of his um, encouraging teaching I want to focus on is um, our relationship to this godless pagan government, the Roman Empire, right? How should followers of Christ conduct themselves in this atmosphere of persecution? Um, and how should we relate to the Roman government? And this connects to the issue of church and state. And this is one of the biggest questions that um, the church and Christians think about and we continue to think about, right? It's a very difficult and complicated issue. Um, and there are two passages that speak about it in a very direct and clear manner. Um, Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. These, th these are the two foundational pillar texts. There's a bunch of other little, relatively littler ones, but these, these are it, right? So church and state. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about politics, okay? Um, so let me read you 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, we'll talk about that, what that means, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's talking about this context of Christians being persecuted, their Gentile neighbors are suspicious of them. I'll explain a little bit more why that is, why particularly Christians were persecuted, but not other religious faiths. Um, and so Peter's saying you need to um, win them over and persuade them by your good deeds. And what are the good deeds? Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, he's talking about the Roman emperor, as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So that's the answer. So let's unpack this. Um, let's look at verse 11. He says, Peter calls the believers sojourners and exiles. So that's a very important, um, those are very important terms. Sojourners and exiles. And he's using these um, labels to uh, situate the earth, these uh, New Testament believers in the, story, in the bigger story of redemptive history, okay? So uh, bear with me, this is an important uh, paradigm to help us understand what is our relationship to the state, okay? So you can look, at, you can go back to the Old Testament and you can divide the Old Testament roughly into um, four time periods. You have uh, the garden, um, then you have um, you have the patriarchs, right? The patriarchs being um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, then you have the kingdom of Israel. 
then you have um, the exile. Okay, so you can divide up the story of the Old Testament into these four pieces. And what I want you to notice is that the relationship of God's people to the governing authorities changes over this story. So in the garden, what do you have? You have this perfect harmony. Um, the worship of God is practiced by everybody. Um, the government is perfect, and the government worships God and acknowledges God, right? So what you have here is you have a theocracy. You have a um, theocracy, meaning rule by God. Or another way to put it is that church and state are fused. They're one and the same. You have a renewal of that or hearkening back of that in the kingdom of Israel. Right? The kings uh, who sat on the throne of Jerusalem were to pay obedience to God. They were to exercise and practice the, the, the biblical faith. So you have another theocracy hearkening back to the garden. Now, what about these two time periods? The period of the exile and the period of the patriarchs. You have the, the, the people of God living as a minority, as a kind of pilgrims. They don't really settle down truly, but they're traveling through the land. They're pilgrims to the land. And all around them is majority non-believers, majority pagans. And they have to deal with, not secular, pagan uh, ruling authorities, and they get along, right? The, for example, the, uh, the Jewish exiles in Babylon, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah specifically tells them, Jeremiah 29, don't rebel, right? Be good citizens of Babylon. Um, you know, Abraham entered into alliances with these uh, pagan kings, so, and yet they were still following God. So I want to call this dual citizenship. They are citizens of heaven, but they are also citizens of the city of man. So when, when Peter says, you are sojourners and exiles, which time period is he evoking to help us to situate us in our story right now? The word sojourners, you know, is one of the famous labels for Abraham. Abraham is a sojourner. And the exiles, of course, is this exile period. So we're here. This is us right now. We don't relate to the story of Israel or the story of the garden in the sense that we're looking for a theocracy. We live in a time of dual citizenship. Okay? And therefore, that situates us in the story. And therefore, we need to live like Abraham. We need to live like the exiles in Babylon. And we need to avoid two extremes. The two extremes, I would say, is withdrawal. And then... This is the uh, biblical position. And um, domination. Okay? So withdrawal is where you say, oh, this world is going to hell. It's pagan. Everyone doesn't believe in God. We need to pull out and sort of form a kind of monastic, protective enclave, like a shelter. But Jesus specifically tells us not to do that. He says we are to be salt and light in the world. In fact, he says in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, he says, you don't put a light, a lamp, under a bowl. You don't hide the light. 
You shine the light. He says you're supposed to be a city on the hill. What does that mean? Everyone can see the city, right? The church is supposed to be this godly city where everyone can notice us. So we are not to withdraw, but at the same time, we are not to dominate. We are not to try to take things over because we don't live in Israel. We don't live in the garden, right? uh, Peter says we are to submit to the governing authorities. So I think what that means, therefore, is that we're not trying to recreate ancient Israel and we're not trying to make whatever country we happen to live in a Christian country. A Christian country harkens back to the paradigm of a theocracy, but we live in a dual citizenship. We are comfortable with and we understand, even though it often brings persecution and misunderstanding and mistreatment, living under a pagan government or pagan society. We're, we're, we're minorities, and we will always be minorities until the true garden comes back, right? The new heavens and a new earth, and then we'll have a, a true theocracy that lasts forever. Um, and I think Peter summarizes in verse 17. Listen to verse 17. He says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, so that means love your fellow believers, the church, fear God, honor the emperor. So I want to examine this word honor. The honor is the Greek word timao. Timao means to give due regard or to acknowledge the value of something, right? So when the Bible says honor your parents, it doesn't necessarily mean, it means as a child you're supposed to obey them, but as, a, as, an, uh, as an adult child you're supposed to honor them, not necessarily obey, respect them, give them their due um, in fact, the Bible says you're supposed to support them in their old age. Um, so that's what honor means, right? Like when we say, I, I, I want to honor you, that means you, you give them the, what is due to them, the respect or the right treatment that is due to them. Listen to the way Romans 13 uses the word honor. <clears throat> the, uh, Romans 13, remember, is the parallel passage. Do I have it printed for you? I do, right? So let me read to you. Therefore, one must be in, subject, in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Right? He's talking about being in submission, subjection. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So, what does it mean to honor the civil authorities? Timao. It means to pay taxes, right? Um, Christians should pay taxes. It means to obey the laws. It means to be good citizens. Understanding that the civil authority will oftentimes be much like the Roman Empire. We have no expectation that we're going to submit to a King David, right? We have no expectation that we're going to submit to King Hezekiah or King Josiah. These are pagan rulers who don't know God. Um, But notice, it says we are to honor the emperor, but we are to fear God. And that's the perfect balance. Fear in the Bible is a reverent worship and awe of something that is great and glorious. The Bible says we are never to fear man. We are never to fear the civil authorities. That's giving them what they don't deserve. You only fear God. That's that's the paradigm. And it's very similar to what Jesus said. Remember in his teaching, 
Um, someone presents to him a denarius and should we pay taxes? And Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God. That's the perfect balance. Give to Caesar what is due to him, taxes, um, obeying the law, being law-abiding citizens. But that's it. That's all he gets. And then render to God what is God's. Worship, right? Um, perfect, I mean, uh, what is it? Obedience in all things. Uh, we are to give him our heart and our devotion. And so this is the basis of civil disobedience. This duality. Because the civil government, the state, has limited authority. Um, and it can't ask for worship. That's, by the way, why Christians ran afoul of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire demanded worship of the emperor and worship of the state gods. So we must disobey and we must obey God. Just like, remember the story of the exile, um, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they were commanded to, what? Bow down to the golden statue of the, uh, the Babylonian king. And they said, what did they say? We must obey God, not man. And so into the furnace they went, right? So that's the basis of civil disobedience. If the civil authorities inhibit or prohibit the free exercise of our Christian faith, we must disobey. We must, and we live in an extraordinary time, a very rare time, where we don't have a super hostile government pressing down on us as the church. Because we live in this really freakish time period by the blessing and grace of God. We can worship freely and openly. But most believers in most times have experienced the opposite. And so we need to be in solidarity with them and, and, and support them, but also be prepared to be with them if the time comes, right? Um, and civil disobedience if there is grave injustice. So if you listen to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a Christian minister, what was the basis for his civil disobedience? He spoke about a higher law than the United States laws, right? The Jim Crow laws. He says the higher law, the law of racial justice, racial equality, is God's law. And so on that basis, he disobeyed, right? Um, but apart from um, these violations or overstepping of bounds by the state, we should give honor to the state. We should do honor um, and obedience, comply with the laws, um, and so forth. And I'm going to open up for questions, but let me, let me finish up the lesson um, so that we can, we, can, we, can, we can think through this. Um, so what does this mean? It means that the state, apart from being connected to the church, has its own legitimacy, even pagan governments. Look at verse 14. J uh, Peter says, the civil authorities punish those who do evil and praise those who, who do good, right? So what is this, the role of the state? To reward law-abiding people and to punish um, lawbreakers. Same thing what Paul says in Romans 13, 4. He is God's servant for your good. Uh, this is the, the, the pagan rulers. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. The sword is the power of state coercion, or what we call police power, the power to put you in handcuffs and to put you in prison. Um, these, these are lawful, legitimate powers of the state that God has granted. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So this is very powerful language, right? Pagan rulers, 
the Emperor Nero is God's servant. He's a minister of God in um, Romans 13, verse 6. And so how do we understand this concept that a pagan ruler is a servant of God, a minister of God? And the answer is that God rules in two ways, or over two spheres. He rules over, um, how did I put it here? Oh, I put it this way. <laughs> he rules over the church, right? The kingdom of God. Um, and then as Christians, as believers, we are all his servants carrying out um, the work of the, the gospel, the ministry of the gospel. But God is also ruling over the state. It's not as if the state is out of God's control. And even when the state does not formally or explicitly acknowledge God, as the creator of all things, they nevertheless serve his will by um, being an avenger of God's wrath, by carrying out the sword, right? So the, 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 the Christian is under these two entities, right? You're, uh, we're under the church in terms of uh, obeying the dictates of the gospel, and then we're under the state in terms of its legitimate authority, what does this look like? It looks like dual citizenship. Right? We are members of the church, and we are citizens of our respective states. And so the role of government is to establish the rule of law, maintain order, public welfare, do police, you know, you know punish evildoers, but the state cannot intrude on the prerogatives of the church. The state cannot tell us who to worship, where to put our ultimate hope in, and so forth. I want to tell you that Christianity is the first religion, in, in, it's the first paradigm or first philosophy in the history of the world that came up with this paradigm. Nobody had ever thought of this before. Everyone had thought of this paradigm. Here's God, and he's over the world. And the world includes temples, religious um, authorities and state and government and so forth and they're all interconnected and therefore um, you can't have a separation that just doesn't make any sense that had never been thought of or conceived of and so this is Christianity's gift to the world that we can separate these two things which means politics is not ultimate I think what's going on in the United States right now is that as people become more and more pagan, they lose their Christian heritage, they become more like this, this paradigm, where the state is all you have. And then politics becomes ultimate. And then you can't compromise, because the compromise is to compromise your religion. It becomes an issue of orthodoxy. And it becomes like a fight between light and darkness, evil and good, right? And, and therefore, this is why we have deep, deep dysfunction. But I think Christianity has something beautiful to offer to the world, which is that we can separate these two things, and therefore, politics is so limited. It deals with relatively limited things, right? Like taxes, or immigration policy, or you know, our foreign affair policy. Those are important, but nothing compared to the gospel, nothing compared to you know, what we worship. And so, you know, Christians can, 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 can be, I think, helpful to our society. The, the other thing, let me see how much time I have. All right, the other thing, is that submission to civil authority is evangelism. That's what Peter says in verse 12. And so let me explain a little bit of the context. The early Christians were called atheists. 
The reason why they were called atheists is because Christians only acknowledge one God, the God of the Bible, and not the, um, uh, what is it, uh, um, the plurality of all the gods of, of, uh, of the pantheon of the Roman Empire. And this was, the Roman Empire had never seen anything like this. And the Roman Empire had no problem with anyone having their own particular religion. You can worship whatever gods you want, as long as you also worship the gods of Rome. You also participate in the uh, official religious feasts to worship the god of Rome. The god of Rome was called Roma, right? So you have to uh, 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 worship uh, Roma, and in that way, you were, you were paying allegiance to the state. And because the Christians were not participating in these uh, religious feasts, um, the Roman Empire thought of Christians as being subversive and rebels, that the Christians were trying to overturn the Roman Empire, but that's just not true. They didn't understand that the Christians were separating these two things. The Christians wanted to not participate in the worship of the state, but still be good citizens, right? Dual citizenship. Um, and, so, and so Peter says that um, we can be, we can show the world, we can what is, silence foolish people um, by our public conduct. We can be engaged in civil affairs, don't withdraw. That means serve in the military, in government, volunteer, PTA. But we need to also be gracious in the public square. Don't dominate. Don't seek to crush minority viewpoints. Don't confuse church and state. Don't try to create a, a Christian country because the state has its own legitimacy without it worshiping God. That's the role of the state. We can't fuse these two things because this is what First Peter's telling us. All right. I wanted to go fast so I could open up for questions. Any question? Lawrence. Yes. <laughs> um, I think, like, theoretically, what I'm saying here, um, so I'm proposing something called, uh, if you, if you want to do um, a deep dive in the internet world, it's called two kingdoms. So this is called the two kingdoms position, which is that we are citizens of two kingdoms, this, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And uh, there's a legitimate role for the kingdom of man, which we must obey, but then ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God. In terms of the abstract paradigm, it's beautiful, <laughs> right? Like I see it so clearly in First Peter, uh, chapter two, and uh, Romans thirteen. But then, what about actual concrete historical examples, right? Um, the two kingdoms position, by the way, this two kingdoms theology go, has a long heritage and lineage. Um, one of the chief proponents of it in the United States was the Confederate South. So in the Confederate South, Southern Christians who were very astute students of the Bible and Orthodox in many, many ways, they said, listen, slavery is an issue of the state, not the church. So we shouldn't meddle in the matters of the state, right? The state has a legitimate right to exercise and regulate commerce and, and, and laws and so forth. And so if we were living in the Confederate South, what would we do? I would want us to fight slavery. So how do we, how do we reconcile these two things? I think, um, or what about you know, Nazi uh, Germany, right? Living in Nazi Germany. I think 
practical wisdom is necessary. And it's very clear from the vantage point of history, but it's not so clear in the present time. Are we living in a current deep injustice? It may very well be, but then 50 years from now, our grandchildren will be like, you guys were complicit in injustice. And but we don't know what it is, right, necessarily, right? And so um, the practical outworkings is, is difficult. So I think this is where Christians need to think and, and, and discuss and talk. And we need to be for the law of God, the higher morality of God. But how do we exercise that properly in our pagan country? Our, our country has many, many, many laws that are contrary to the word of God. Let me give you one example. The divorce laws, right? We, have, we believe in something called no-fault divorce. This is not according to Scripture. This is not according to the teachings of Jesus. So what should we do with no-fault divorce? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, so we need to talk about these matters, right? That's my answer. Any other questions? Or do you have a follow-up thought, Lawrence? Yes. And there's another passage where Jesus talks about two masters. <laughs> and, um, but it seems like you're saying that you know one of these masters is always subservient to the other. Um, well, I'm saying that we obey the ruling authorities as long as they don't overstep their bounds. Well, I don't want to just talk about civil disobedience too, but also I think we should have civil participation. Sure. So I think... Or just, you know, in deciding what to do with your own life and your own power, like yeah. spheres. What are some principles? I think be a good citizen, be a good neighbor, um, participate in civic associations. Um, if there's neighborhood watch, be a, be a part of that. If you're in a school... Um, not just super local, but I'm just going to start with local, like PTA um, or other civic institutions. I think Christians should be salt in this world, just participating in these things. And we're not trying to make the PTA a Christian prayer group, right? But we see it as a legitimate, you know, kind of civil, civic institution. And then also I think Christians should be involved in national politics. I think there should be Democrat Christians, Republican Christians, independents, and we should... Um, act with integrity, right? Um, and but work for the common good. And should we have high taxes or low taxes? These are legitimate disputes. I don't. I, I mean, I have my own personal opinion. But again, my role is I'm an officer of the church, so I'm only going to talk about matters of the church. I'm not going to talk about what should be policy for the state because that's overstepping my bounds. I have my own personal opinions. If you ask me my personal opinions away from the pulpit, I'll tell you, I'll give you an earful of my own personal opinions, but this is what, like some people complain, how come IGC doesn't do politics? And the reason why is because of this paradigm. Politics is a, is a legitimate sphere of human endeavor, but it's not for what the church ought to get involved in because these are separate matters, right? These are separate authorities. But again, Lawrence will say, what about the Holocaust? If we were in the Holocaust, I would smuggle 
Jews. I would, I would, I would hide them. I would, I would do everything I can to defeat the Nazi regime. But then, I don't know. Like even when you were in the Nazi regime, was it as clear cut? I think it was. Bonhoeffer thought it was clear cut, but I don't know. Yes. Well, and I think I think when when you look at history, there's also historical examples like Corrie Ten Boom. Yes. If you've ever read her autobiography, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And her life let was as a Christian. Yeah. At that time. Yeah. And even currently as a Christian, as she looks at forgiveness. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's a kind of example of the state was was violating God's law yes. of how God loves his people. Yes. And she and her family mostly stood up and 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 basically, you know, the the suffering that they had because yeah. of that. So, yeah. And it's a very powerful highly recommend the book. Yes. Absolutely. Right. So there's examples in historical But I mean let me also say like not just the civil disobedience, but I think it's important that Christians don't try to dominate the public sphere. We should always fully recognize we live in a pluralistic world, meaning there are people of different religions and different faiths. And we're not trying to recreate a theocracy. In a theocracy, if you didn't believe in the God of the Bible and you worshiped another God, the penalty was death. In the exile and patriarch period, if you believed in another God, that's just like, oh yeah, that's normal. <laughs> but let me tell you about the God of Israel. Let me tell you about his savior, the, the, his son, the savior of the world. So we operate in a very different way. And so that's the other thing I want to say is I, I want Christians to be cautious because we get so excited about God and we want him to be supreme in all things, but he could be supreme over the state without the state formally acknowledging who he is because that's the paradigm that's given to us in the Bible. Yes? Yeah. God gives us his greatest commandment. Yeah. That I think it's relevant. It's just like back to the basic moment, relevant to every every moment. Um, where he, you know, the Pharisees ask them, you know, um, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Like, not the state law, that kind of stuff. But Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so I think that when we do face moments where we need to make a decision, um, regardless of what the state says, our job is to love God and love other people. And that is the high, that is, that is his commandment for us. On that note, we'll <laughs> close. That's a good word. Um, let me close with prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, help us to live as faithful followers, to persevere even when we experience misunderstanding and mistreatment by our neighbors, and not to think it's something strange happening, but that this is the, the normal experience of believers in all times and all periods. So help us to be salt, help us to be light, help us to be faithful witnesses of your glory and your grace. Um, help us to show by our um, endurance and integrity and righteous behavior um, that you reign and that you are true. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, class.